Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning, Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to turn uh, again to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. If you're using one of these uh, Bibles that are available back on the cart over there, it's on page 956. And we're going to get back into the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and I'm eager to get back in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been great to spend uh, those weeks of Advent, five Sundays, focusing on all that Jesus is for us, all the promises that are yes and amen in, the Jesus, in Jesus Christ, that through Jesus, uh, through Jesus, God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, uh, God with us. He is joy for the world. And I was very much helped uh, by Ted's message last week to look at Jesus first on January 1st and how he helped us to see how to have a, a, a merry heart in a, in a Martha world. I was hoping you'd say that somewhere uh, during the message, so I couldn't resist to say it at this point. <laughs> That's, that, I found that very helpful on the first Sunday, literally the first day of the year, to focus in on the primacy of Christ. And you'll see themes that parallel that uh, in today's message as well. But it's also good to get back into this book that we uh, started in all the way back uh, in the summer, in July. And we've been, we've been looking at the book under this, this bigger heading or this bigger theme of living out our gospel identity. Uh, God has made a claim on us. Our identity is in and through Christ. And now, what are the implications of that? What does it mean to live that out? And Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, the church that he had been part of founding and spent about three years there building into the believers and calling others to Christ and, and, and equipping that church. Uh, he had been there. It had been very dear to his heart. He'd been away, and he'd heard there were some problems and some issues there. And there were some challenges for them in living out the gospel. And they had some, some misunderstandings about what that meant. And so he penned this letter. And, and through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, it comes to us now as Scripture. And it's also helpful for us in living out the gospel. There are implications. And we're in, we're in chapter 7 today. And we've, we were in chapter 7 for three weeks uh, back in November before we broke for Advent. We're going to come back to chapter 7 uh, one more time to this central passage, uh, verses 17 through 24. And if you recall, in chapter 7, Paul is giving them some clear instruction, uh, a commands, if you will, very much in the imperative mode. This is what you should do and this is what you should not do uh, in regard to marriage and in regard to divorce and in regard to singleness. Uh, what's, they, they had some crazy ideas of, of what it meant now that they were believers. They knew the Corinthians did, as, as you knew when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that something radical had happened. But there was a sense in which everything had changed. You were now a new creation in Christ, and you, you are now a new creation in Christ if you are trusting in Him for salvation. And they knew that, that something had changed, and they, they, weren't, they, they were struggling with how to work that out. Did that mean that uh, since, since Paul was single, and, and that was really important to him, and he found it helpful uh, for his ministry and his calling, that, that they should choose singleness, or they should choose celibacy within marriage? Uh, and then what, is it, what did it mean to, to, for someone to be married to an unbeliever? And so Paul gives all of these instructions. But the central 
the central point that is, that is resonating out on both sides, if you will, of chapter 7 is what is said in verses 17 through 24, where Paul gives some very clear instructions about how we are to respond to God's grace. We're always looking to do that, right? Whenever we study Scripture, whenever we hear sermons, whenever we read Scripture, we always want to know, what is the application? How do I live this out in my life? How should I respond? And Paul is going to tell us how to respond. And so we're going to work through this passage and through asking three questions. Okay, what is the response that God is asking for from his people? And then secondly, uh, why? Why? What is the grounding? The scripture never gives us commands without giving us reasons that undergird those commands. So, so why should we respond this way? And then finally, how? How will we do that? How will we, how will we be motivated to do that? Scripture, God gives us commands, and he gives us a reason or a grounding, uh, the why question, and then the how question. What is the, what is the motivation or what is the fuel that will enable us to carry out this command? So let's, first of all, look at this text. Read God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Uh, Paul has just spoken to those who are in a mixed marriage, right? A, a believer married to an unbeliever. And he said the default mode is believer remain in that marriage. However, if the unbelieving spouse is not willing uh, to do that, then, uh, then divorce is permitted and may in fact be the wise thing uh, to do. He's, but, but nevertheless, he begins. Okay, so his, his ground command is remain Nevertheless, verse 17, only, now he goes broader, now he's speaking to, to everybody, not just those who are married. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek to become circumcised. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain, uh, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. Uh, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is, the free, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. In whatever condition you are called, let him remain there with God. So what is the command here? What is the essential thing that Paul is calling the Corinthians to do and that the Holy Spirit is calling us to do? Well, it's, it's pretty clear. Paul follows the old uh, speech 101 pattern. Uh, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, and then tell them what you just told them. Because three times here, at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end of the passage, Paul gives us the what. What is it that God is requiring of us? Well, verse 17. Only let 
each person lead the life or, or continue in the walk of the life of their life that the Lord has called him to. Uh, and at the end, almost the, exactly the same, in whatever condition each one was called, let him or her remain with God. And then smack in the middle, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This is God's command. This is God's will for our lives from this uh, passage. What does God require of you, Christian? Uh, he requires that you remain. That you go on with your life. That you stay. That's the application of this passage. That's the response. Should we, should we try that together? Should we together apply God's word right now? Let's give it a shot. On the count of three, I want you to remain, okay? One, two, three, remain. That was pretty good. Let's try it again. <laughs> on the count of three, I want you to go on living your life, okay? One, two, three, go on living your life. Wow. You guys are amazing. I mean, you, you apply scripture flawlessly. That is very, very impressive. That's the command. Go on with your life. This is God's will for your life. Christian, believer, you have been transformed by Christ. Now remain. Go on with your life as you've been living it. Well, we can't stop there. Three points, just to let you know, the next point is going to be a little bit longer than this. Why does God command you and me to remain in our present life situation? That is the clear command of this portion of Scripture. Stay the course. Remain. But why? Why does he call each one of us to, re to remain in our present life situation? Well, that question is answered uh, by a word and a theme that is all over this text. You probably noticed it as we read through it. Uh, there's a word or a form of a word that appears eight times uh, in our English translations. There's actually there one more time uh, in the original Greek translation. What's the word? Help me out here. Call or called. You have been called nine times. I won't read all of them, but you've, God has called him or her. Uh, his call. Uh, he has been called. When you are called. When you are called. And it's clear that it's God who's doing the calling here. Which, which is an incredible thing to think about. That the God of the universe, the, the eternally existing Almighty One, speaks and calls out to His creation. He calls to us. And we can hear Him calling to us. The very, the very voice that spoke uh, the, the universe into existence calls out. The one who, who upholds all of creation by the power of his word calls out to us with that same word. In fact, it's God's will for humanity that, that, we, that we live uh, not on food alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of of our God. That was God's will in creation when he created the heavens and the earth and he placed humanity at the pinnacle of that creation and created us in his image and in his image having the ability to communicate and to understand and to hear from him. 
And you know, the story of, of creation and the world and of humanity is that, that our foreparents, Adam and Eve, chose not to continue to listen to God's voice, but to listen to the voice of a usurper who, who wanted to take the place of God in their lives and convince them that they should be uh, their own God and their own authority. And we do the very same thing. We listen to that voice. And yet... In that very scene in the garden, God did something significant. He called out, where are you? To the very ones who had, who had committed treason against him, trashed his authority and, and his loving care in their lives, he called out to them, where are you? He took the initiative. And God has been calling out to humanity ever since. He sent Jesus his final word, who called out to people and said, come to me, all of you who, who labor and are heavy laden, and you will find rest. He called out to people, follow me. And every time the gospel message goes out, God is, God is calling out. He's calling people to himself saying, turn from your sin, turn from your rebellion, turn from your treason, and, and come to me. Embrace your creator and your redeemer. That's what we know as the gospel call. It is, is the call of the gospel. The, the free offer of salvation is reflected in the mission statement of this church, proclaiming the mercies of God to the four corners of the earth. That is the gospel call. But the call spoken about in this passage is more specific than that. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said, many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, everybody uh, hears the call of the gospel. The gospel is and should be broadcast freely uh, to, to all indiscriminately. But not all respond with faith. Not all respond to the gospel in a way in which it is effectual in their lives. It's, it's sort of like when you go to a ball game and you, you've got the um, concession vendors out there saying, hey, hot dog, hey, Coke, and you're sitting there watching the game. And as they say, hey, Coke, you hear that, but, but you're focused in on the game and almost everybody in your section hears it, but they don't respond. But there are a few people who are thirsty who have been sitting there in the hot sun for an hour or more, and they've been thinking about what would it taste like to have an ice-cold Coke right now? How good that would be, how satisfying that would be, how refreshing that would be. I know you're, I'm making you thirsty right now. I'm making myself thirsty. And those are the ones that when the guy says, hey, Coke, they raise their hand and say, yeah, me. I'll, I want some of that. I'll take that. See, that's how it is with the gospel. The gospel is broadcast widely throughout the earth. That's, that's the general gospel call. But there are some whom God has prepared, and they are thirsty. And they know their need. And he has shown it to them. And then when they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, they say, yes, that is what I want. That is what I need. Give me some of that. Only Jesus can satisfy me. And that is what we sometimes call the effectual call of the gospel. And that's the call that Paul is talking about here. 
He's, he's reminding these believers that at some point in their life, they heard the gospel, they were thirsty for it, God changed their heart, they responded, they repented of their sin, they turned to Jesus Christ in faith, and now they are, they are his children. And they are the called. Paul referred to them as the called at the very beginning. Do you remember this way back in uh, chapter 1? When he wrote to them, he said, to, to the church at Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, called to be holy ones. Uh, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. It's a past tense call that's, that's been responded to uh, by faith. And, and so why is God commanding us to remain, as Paul commanded them, to remain in their present situation and, and station in life? It's because God's call, his effectual call, the call that was responded to in faith is the core identity of a Christian. God's effectual call is is the primary identity for a believer. Who we are is a result of whose we are. Uh, The Apostle Peter wrote about it this way uh, in, his, in his first epistle, identifying Christians as those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I love that term. Does God own a lot of stuff? Does he have a lot of possessions? He only has one treasured possession. It's his people, those he has called. He has done that, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us, out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once before we were called, we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once before we were called, we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so our primary job, our primary calling, we use that of our jobs often, don't we, that that terminology, our primary calling believer is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is your primary calling. Do you have a a calling that is your vocation, whether you're a homemaker or an electrician or a professor or janitor or whatever you do? Yeah. But this is your primary call, and this is my primary call. Do pastors have have a call to ministry and from a particular church? Yes, they do. But this is our primary call, following Jesus, being his disciples. That's the core identity of every believer. And Paul goes on to illustrate that uh, in two ways. He gives us two illustrations of the primacy of God's saving, effectual call in the believer's life. And the first uh, comes from uh, what would have been the the most obvious and and, uh, most distinct ethnic religious identifier uh, or distinctive uh, in his day. The difference between a Jew and a Gentile as represented in the mark of, of circumcision or, or not being circumcised. And, and this would have been, you know, Paul writing to the Corinthians, this would have been a church that was a mix of both uh, Jews and Gentiles, as most of the churches that Paul uh, wrote to were, but, but probably more on the Gentile side. And, and the, the culture was such that the, the Jews thought they were special and, and looked down on the Gentiles and that was symbolic through circumcision, and, and the Gentiles just thought the Jews were weird. 
Uh, They had all these crazy religious ideas. They only uh, served one God. It was just strange. And so this would have been a very personal way that people identified themselves. And Paul said that that that's gone. All these ethnic, all these religious distinctions that used to identify you, that is gone now in Christ. You don't now need to seek to to be circumcised or to be Jewish or or to, to, to abrogate that from your life. Either way. And of course, we know that Although it doesn't seem this, like this was a huge issue in Corinth, uh, in many places that Paul wrote that the division between Jews and Gentiles was a major issue within the church. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians where it was. Uh, and he said, you know what? In Jesus, that, that wall of hostility that separated these two groups and these two peoples, it has been broken down. Because Jesus, though he was Jewish, though he was of the circumcision, uh, he came to fulfill everything that God had intended in his promise, covenant promises uh, to the nation of Israel. And so there is now no difference. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so one's background is not a barrier to your discipleship. Rather, it is the backdrop. All these distinctions that we may have, our, our, our gender, our family of origin, our ethnic makeup, our, our personality type, none of these things matter in Christ. They, they're, not, they're not a barrier to our discipleship. They're not a barrier to following Jesus. Rather, they're, they're the backdrop. Think about how a backdrop works in a stage production. Uh, the backdrop provides color. It provides setting. But it's not the main event. The main event is what happens on on the stage. And the main event of our lives is Jesus Christ being displayed in and through us against the backdrop of everything that we are, our ethnicity, our personality, our gender, all of that. In our obedience, our holiness tells the world who we truly are. We are those transformed by God's grace. That is our core identity. Friend, one of the reasons that God saved you, believer, is that he wants people like you in his kingdom. He wants people like you in his family. The Father sent the Son to redeem all kinds of people. (laughs) Jesus is a a one-size-fits-all Savior. He, He is the Savior of all kinds of people. But he saves people of every shape and every size and in every color and every personality in every background. That's not the picture of God's kingdom that we see in in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain who purchased for God people from every language and tribe and people group and nation. You know, sometimes within the church, we, we, we look at who we are and we wonder, uh, do I really fit? Does, does my, there's a lot of personality tests out there. You ever notice that? Probably everybody here has taken a personality test or two. And we tend to, tend to divide ourselves into personalities. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. And maybe in the church, um, somebody who is, is more of an extrovert, and just more outgoing, might look around and say, man, everybody in my church seems so studious. 
They all seem like they're thinkers, and they're, they're always studying things and reading books, and uh, pastors always quoting dead white guys, and they just seem like they're all so... I don't know if I can be a... I don't know if I can be part of that. Or the extrovert might say, or the introvert might say, you know what? This whole Christianity thing, wow, you're supposed to be hospitable and have people in your home and you're supposed to be talking to people in the line at the grocery and, and meeting people and, and just, and, and, and so outgoing and that's not me. You know what, and God's grace comes to us and says, it, it, none of that matters in Christ. Your core identity is as God's child, redeemed by his grace, purchased, dearly bought, dearly loved. And that includes all kinds of people, from all kinds of backgrounds, in all kinds of personalities. Second illustration that we're given, that Paul gives us, of the priority of God's call on the believer's life uh, comes from the most profound uh, socio-economical identity that anyone would have had uh, or difference in the Roman world, namely the slave in comparison to the freed person. And I think it is important to remember a couple things. First of all, that slavery uh, was widespread in the Roman world, that in some uh, parts of the Roman world, uh, half or more of the population would have been slaves. Uh, in Corinth, it's estimated that about a third of the population. But I would estimate that even more of the church was likely uh, to be slaves because, simply because the, the gospel seemed to have uh, its most success among that particular station in life. So Paul is, is talking to a church that's probably at least a third, maybe a half or more slaves. Uh, but also that included uh, masters of slaves. And it's, it's helpful to note that slavery in the Roman world was not like the slavery that we're used to from the history of our country. Um, it was not uh, racially based. Uh, slaves in the Roman Empire could often be highly educated, uh, even doctors or accountants. They were often paid uh, for their work, as well as doing very menial things. I think that's important to note. I think that's probably why the ESV chooses to use the term bondservant rather than slave in this passage. But here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, if you're a slave... Somebody else has authority over you. You're not, you're not your own person. You're, you're still, you still have bonds. And Paul turns to that group, and in verse 21, he says, are you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Don't let it cause any worry. One commentator said you could, re, you could translate that phrase, forget about it. You're a slave? Forget about it. Really, Paul? <laughs> How can you say that? How can he say that? Well, he can say it because as a slave or a free person or wherever you fit on the socioeconomic range, one's identity in Christ is what trumps all else. And Paul says that if you, if you are a slave, your identity in Christ is you are Jesus' freed person. And if you do happen to be free in Jesus, 
You are a slave to Christ. He is your master. Sure, your circumstances may change. Paul mentions that here. Possible within that context that a slave could purchase their freedom or or even uh, be released from their bondage by the master. But either way, your circumstances aren't what's most important. My circumstances aren't what's most important. And they are not an obstacle to discipleship. Our circumstances aren't an obstacle to following Jesus. Rather, they are the setting for our following Jesus. They are the setting for our discipleship. We need to hear that. Because sometimes we can be tempted to think, you know what? I think I'd be a better Christian if I just worked someplace else. I think I could be a better disciple of Jesus if my spouse was a little bit more like this and a little bit less like that. Or, or, or I could be a better Christian if I attended a different school or, or lived somewhere else. Or I would be a better uh, disciple of Jesus if I didn't have these particular problems. If I didn't have these particular challenges in my life. And God's word comes to all of us this morning and says, do not be concerned about it. None of these are the core issue. God says the core issue is my call on your life. The core issue is that I have transformed you from the inside. Whatever those externals of your life look like. And your circumstances, God says, have been sovereignly ordained by him for your discipleship. I believe that's what this passage is teaching us. That our circumstances are are tailor-made by God for our discipleship. That he wants to grow us in the midst of those circumstances and through those circumstances. That's radical. Agreed? I mean, it may even be more radical than we realize. That, That little portion in verse 21 where kind of parenthetically Paul says, to, to slaves, you know, but if you can gain your freedom, you know, go for it. Uh, that's, that's how most translations, most Bible translations translate that phrase, uh, but it's not a slam dunk. It could very easily be read uh, more like this. Slaves, even if you can gain your freedom, rather take advantage of your slave status. In other words, there is an advantage to every status and every station of life. And friends, that makes all of life holy. That means there's no area or no aspect of our existence that is, that is off limits. There's no area or aspect of our existence that, that God doesn't sanctify. And it really breaks down sort of the barrier between the, 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 the sacred and the secular. All the places we go, God intends for us to bring the presence of Christ. Everywhere that you go, where you live, your neighborhood, your home, your workplace, you are an outpost of the kingdom of God. And wherever you go, you bring the presence of the kingdom of God with you. And there's there's no one else who brings the kingdom of God, believer, and its presence to all of the same places that you do. I love how um, a dead white guy named Abraham Kuyper uh, stated this um, 
I'm sure you, many of you have heard this before. There is not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This belongs to me. And that goes for the particularities of every one of our lives. Jesus, who has bought us with a price, made us his own, comes and says, that area of life, that belongs to me. That area of life, you're called to glorify me there. Circumstances can and do change. And sometimes we're able to change our circumstances. Sometimes sometimes we move to Virginia. Uh, Things change in life. It doesn't always stay the same. But our circumstances are not an obstacle to our discipleship. Rather, they are the setting, they are, they are the arena for our discipleship to happen, sovereignly ordained by a God who is good and who loves us dearly. Well, finally, how, how, how do we do this? How do we pursue this rare jewel of contentment in the midst of, of my particular circumstances, in the midst of, of, of my particular background? Because let's, let's face it, sometimes you and I, we get, we get frustrated with the personality type that we might have. Uh, sometimes we may wish we were, had a different family background, or, or sometimes just our circumstances might just tick us off. It all makes sense right here, right now, right? It all makes sense on paper, makes, makes sense right there, doesn't it? But in a few hours, it's going to be Monday morning. In a few minutes, we'll exit this building, go back home. What then? How can I work up the energy to convince myself to be be content in all my circumstances? The answer is, you can't. The answer is, I can't. It's not a case of of mind over matter or or, or positive thinking or just do it. It's the case of Jesus has already done it. It's right there in the text. Verse 24, you, dear one, you were bought with a price. And what was that price? It was the precious blood of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was the price. And so the motivation, the fuel for our obedience, for our contentment with, with, with my particular background and my particular circumstances is embracing and glorying who we are in Christ. Our gospel identity Jesus has purchased our freedom. Why would we ever want to become slaves to our circumstances or or slaves to concerns about our background, slaves to the opinions of others? We are Jesus' freed men and women. Friends, whom the Son has set free, He has set free indeed. He loved you to the point of giving up His life for your freedom. He sets you free from the tyranny of the devil. But that also now belongs, means that you belong to him. 
His price set you free from slavery to Satan, but now you become a slave of Christ. He is your master. And our master says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. You see, when we are, when we are controlled by our circumstances, concerns about our personal makeup and all of that. We're, we're like a little toy boat getting flipped around by the waves. I had a toy boat when I was a kid. And I used to pull that boat behind our family's boat on, a, on like a string in a fishing line. And you wouldn't go very fast and the waves would just slap that little plastic boat all over the place and it would capsize all the time. And then I figured out you needed to have something heavy in the boat called ballast, that if I put some water in the bottom of the boat, that that weight would, would make that boat firm, and it would cut right, a little plastic boat would cut right through the little waves that came at it, and it wouldn't be flopping around all over the place. Friends, reminding ourselves of the gospel, that we have been bought with a price, by the precious blood of Jesus. That is the ballast in the boat of our lives. All the ripples, all the waves of circumstances and life and everything else come at us. But when we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, how he loved us, how he gave himself up for us, friends, that's what keeps our little boats in the water and keeps them clipping through the difficulties and the circumstances, the good days and the bad days. And we have this promise. It's the Emmanuel promise. Verse 24 at the end of it. Let each one remain in the condition that they were called and let them remain there with God. What a wonderful promise. Our circumstances the ups and downs of life, the gospel reminds us that Jesus gave himself up for us to make us his own. That is our primary identity. And he is with us. He is with us. And you know what? That, that causes us to say, Lord, take all that I am, all that you know me to be, it's yours. I surrender it all to you. May God give us the grace to do just that. Amen. Lord Jesus, we praise you today. We thank you. We glory in this reality that though we did not deserve to hear your voice, you have called out to us saying, I love you. I've given up my life for you. Turn from sin and self and become my child. Be forgiven. Come with me. Let me be the, let me be the weightiness in your life that will give you great joy in the midst of whatever your circumstances are. Lord, thank you for that reality. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would provide the grace for us, that we can, with our hearts, say what 
is going to be sung in just a moment here. Lord, take all that I am. Take the things that I cling to. Lord, I owe everything to you. I surrender it all to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.